and in their um, meaning um, by themselves, but when you put them together, it, it just becomes mind-blowing. You know, those two words are, uh, first of all, omniscient, and what that word just means is that God is all-knowing, and uh, all-knowing, I mean, we, you know, we kind of say that, and uh, we, we just see the surface of it. When you think about a being that knows all, like there's, there's nothing hidden, uh, there, there you could never, not one the smallest element of a situation could you present to God and he doesn't know it altogether. Like he's, he's completely omniscient, knowing all things. Um, that's amazing. But then the other word is omnipotent. And omnipotent means all-powerful and uh, or almighty. And what that literally means is that there is absolutely nothing uh, that is more powerful than God or that he is not powerful enough to accomplish. And again, if we just say the word or consider it lightly, we just see the surface. It's like looking at the surface of the ocean. You know, there's a lot of it, but it doesn't at all tell anything about the depth of it. But what it means when, when we say that God is omnipotent, it means that you could imagine in your mind um, the most powerful, the, the most powerful thing you know, or the most, uh, the, the largest amount of power that you can imagine in your mind and put it on one side of a scale. And what God is capable of is always going to be infinitely heavier than that. On the uh, Always. And then even if you try to move that then to this side of the scale, then what God is is still going to be heavier on this side. All powerful, meaning that it's in, infinite. There's no limit to his power. So now you put those two things together. And you see that he is omnipotent, meaning he can do all things, and he's omniscient, and so he knows all things. And now the size of God and the ability of God just is infinitely greater. You just try to try to comprehend, we'll never comprehend that and even be able to begin to figure out uh, what that means or what the limits of that are uh, in the whole thing. So now we apply that to the promises of God. We take those two attributes of who he is. His omniscience, he knows all things. His omnipotence, he can do all things. And now let's hear what he says about that uh, concerning his promises. He says this. He says, first of all, that known of God are all his works from the beginning uh, of the creation. Meaning that from the very beginning, God already knew, because he's omniscient, everything that he was going to do throughout the whole span of Earth's existence before any of it came to pass. Omniscience can do that because if he's all-knowing, then there's no surprises. He already knows everything that's going to happen. Because he's omnipotent, it means that he's able to control all of those events that are going to happen from the beginning all the way to the end. So because he's omniscient and omnipotent, he can know all things that are going to happen from the beginning of the creation all the way to the end with no surprises and nothing ever spinning out of his control. Now concerning our lives, that's generic, but concerning our lives, Jeremiah 29:11, the Bible says, God says, concerning his people, God says, I know the thoughts that I have towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. And listen, this is King James. It says, to bring you to an expected end. Most translations say to give you a future and a hope, which, you know, those are nice platitudes, but I would much prefer an expected end. And the reason is because an expected end is a definite location or a definite destination, meaning that God in my life, as he looks at my life, he knows the end at the beginning he has in his mind a definite location or destination where I'm going to end up. And because he's omniscient, he knows what that is. And because he's omnipotent, he's able to bring me to that expected end. That's me personally. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul sums it up this way. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, that faith is a gift of God, and it's not by works, meaning you can't earn it, you didn't deserve it, you have no part to play in making it happen, lest any man should boast. And then he says this, for we, you and I, are his workmanship, 
We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, listen, that God has before ordained or before laid out or before planned that we should walk in them. Now, what does that mean? It means that in his omniscience, meaning God knows all things, he has already prearranged for our lives the things that we are going to accomplish. And because he is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful, he's able to bring those plans to pass in our lives and for our lives, independent of us. He's omniscient, he's omnipotent, known of God, all his works from the beginning, and we are created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's before ordained. Now, when you look at the kingdom of God, in contrast to the kingdom of men, or the kingdom of men being the system of this world um, and our lives in this world. That's the kingdom of men. Over the course of a lifetime, we have plans for ourselves, we have goals for ourselves, and we have accomplishments that we um, produce in, in and of our lifetimes. We have a career, we raise a family, we have a certain amount of kids, we live somewhere, we make a certain amount of money, um, we develop a certain amount of talents, you know, we have a personality. Th those are all worldly things that just make up our lives here uh, on this earth. And so, you know, you die and someone stands up at your funeral and they say they accomplished this, 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 and this, a family man, you know, and all this stuff. And that's, that's, uh, that's from the perspective of men in the kingdom of men. But from God's perspective, when God makes a man and saves a man and then uh, develops a man and has a plan for that man, God's looking at it through the lens of his kingdom in contrast to the kingdom of this world. And in his mind, when he creates us in Christ Jesus for good works, he has something that he has designed that you and I affect or contribute or change, or in some way impact for his glory's sake, or for his name's sake. And that's what he has in his mind, and sometimes that can just be one thing, that just one major impacting, important thing that God puts us on this world to do, that in his mind is going to change the course of eternity. I'll give you a for instance, Abraham. In God's mind, Abraham's um, an entire purpose for his kingdom's sake boiled down to one thing, and that was to have a son. So all the other things that God did in Abraham's life, you know, and did with his life, really, in God's economy, there was one thing that God wanted from Abraham, a son, Isaac, and God produced it, right? You look at Jacob, and, and what was God's purpose for Jacob's life in his kingdom's business? He was to have a bunch of kids, Right, twelve sons Jacob needed in order to, uh, you know, seed out the patriarchal line that would become Israel. You know, that was God's purpose for Jacob's life. Joseph, God's purpose for Joseph's life was to bring those descendants, that family of only seventy souls at the time, down to Egypt for the next stage of God's plan. Moses, the whole plan of his life was to bring then the children of Israel out of Egypt, wherein the next stage of their existence and destiny would begin. Samuel, the whole purpose for his existence in, in God's mind, was to administrate a season of transition when the kingdom of God would change from judges to kings, and Samuel would be the one that would anoint and ordain those kings. That was the good work that God had ordained for Samuel's life. By the time we get to Solomon, who follows David, the whole purpose that God had for him in his kingdom's view and, and, and scope was to build the temple. That's what Solomon did. It's really all he accomplished for the glory of God in terms of God's eternal purpose of bringing things down to the person of Christ. And so on and so forth, when you look at God's men throughout history, there's really only a couple of things, one or two, you know, that God has in mind for them that this is going to change the scope and shape of my kingdom. But every single one of us has a part to play in that of some sort. Now, when we take all of that, the omniscient, omnipotent purpose of God for his kingdom and glory's sake, and we apply it to David, what we see is that God had essentially two things in mind that he was going to do with David 
in in lieu of everything else that David experienced and everything else that David did. So what was God's purpose and plan, the foreordained work that God gave to David? It was two things. Number one, what we looked at last week, was to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David or into the city of God. And the idea behind that is that God intended for David, who would be the king, the first real king over the United Kingdom of Israel, to make the presence and glory of God the epicenter of Israel's united national life. That was purpose number one, to make God the center of a united kingdom. The second thing that God uh, intended David to do is to do what we're going to see in our chapter today, chapter 7. And that is that David, and listen carefully, David would provide the materials for God's everlasting house. David would provide the materials for God's everlasting house, and he's going to do that in two ways. Now, before we get into the text, I need to say one more thing. Is that God has, at all times, when, he, when we're talking about his purpose for our lives, the preordained plan according to his omniscience and omnipotence, God has two things in every one of our lives that he is interested in. Number one is his development of the Christ-like character in our personal character and in our personal uh, being to change us, to conform us, to transform us into the image of Christ. That is first and foremost in the mind of God when it comes to his plan for our lives. He is desiring to take us out of the world, remove from us the selfish, fallen nature after Adam, and to transform us, not reform us. There's a world of difference between transformation and reformation. God doesn't reform things. He transforms things. And so to remove us from the world, crucify the old man, and then birth the nature of Jesus Christ in us and form the, the character and the person of Christ. That's paramount to God. Second to that, then, is his plan of what his mission is for our life or for his purpose or what he wants to do with us. And the two things are in tandem. You can't have one without the other. If he can't form Christ, he can't produce the outcome. The two things have to happen. And so as we look at David here and we come into now God fulfilling the purpose for David's life, we see that it happens on the other side of everything that God formed in David, the character that was made in him. So chapter 7, let's take a look at the text and see what happened, and then let's find application for our own lives in terms of what God uh, intends to do or wants to do with you and me, because there's absolutely uh, um, a lens to, to see that through here in the chapter. So it says in verse 1, it says that it came to pass that when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within curtains. And Nathan said to David, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And so the very uh, thing that, that happens here now is, as we introduce um, this next chapter of David's destiny is that David realizes um, he has a moment of realization of all that he's been through and where it's led him. Um, and, and it tells us there in, in the, the, the very beginning in the first verse, it says three things. It uses the word king. It uses the word sat and rest. <laughs> roundabout, and it uses the word house. And so basically what happens is that David comes to a point now where he's wearing a crown, he's sitting on a throne, he's dwelling in a house of cedar, and he's at rest from all of his enemies. And he realizes at this moment that God has brought him um, to this incredible place within his life. Now, we saw in our study last week, and the, 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 the verses back in chapter 5, I think it's chapter 5, verse 12, David realized that none of this was for his own sake, that everything that God had done for him was for God's name's sake and for God's kingdom's sake. That had nothing to do with David. But as David is sitting there and he looks around and he sees this palace and he considers this crown that he's wearing and the conditions of his life, he realizes God has done so much for me. 
Uh, here I am sitting the beneficiary of all of his grace and mercy, and I deserve none of it, and none of it's about me. And, and all this goodness is for me. And David is filled with this, um, this feeling as though he wants to do something now for God. Not a work to, to, to pay God back. That's not the idea. Not to earn anything that God has done for him as though God has outdone David's credit line and, and now David, you know, it has nothing to do with that. It's just pure gratitude. Have you ever had someone do something for you? Or, or maybe you come to a point in your life where you realize everything that your parents did for you growing up. You know, you're, you're 30 or 40 something years old and all of a sudden it hits you like what they gave up and, you know, you've tasted it for yourself now and, and you just want to do something for them. And it isn't to pay back. It's just gratitude. And that's the sentiment of David in all this. He's like, man, God has been so good to me and I just want to do something for him. And so it comes into David's mind that he wants to now build a temple for God. He wants to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant something that will be beautiful and glorify his name. And so what he does is he goes to Nathan the prophet and he seeks counsel. And he just basically asks Nathan, hey, what do you think of this? I've got this this thing in my idea. I'm dwelling in a palace. God's dwelling in a tent. Let me build him a temple. And Nathan's quick response to David's inquiry is, hey, you're the king. Do whatever's in your heart. Do what you want to do. Not so fast. Verse 4. It says that it came to pass that night... <coughs> that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? You think you're going to take the omnipotent, omniscient, ever-present God, and you're going to put him in a house made with human hands? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. God says, I have never sat down in my purposes on earth. I've always been mobile. I've always been moving. My purposes in the earth are not to rest. I'm not looking for a place to sit, God says. He says, but rather I have walked with the children of Israel in all the place. In all the places wherein I have walked with the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, why build ye not me a house of cedar? I've never been concerned with that. I've been concerned with feeding my people, but never that my people should provide something for me. Now, therefore, so shall you say unto my servant David. And so God basically says to Nathan now, who spoke too quickly, he spoke without praying. You ever do that? I know I've done that. <laughs> you know, And God says, you've got to go fix that now. And he says, you've got this backwards. If you, if you do this, David, in this way, you're going to send the wrong message, as though I expect my people to do something for me. And I don't. I want my people to be fed. I want my people to be built up. And I go with them where they go. I don't expect them to come to me where I am. So go tell my servant David. Here's the message now. David, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheep coat. That's a barn, by the way. I took you out of the barn. From following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with you whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all your enemies out of your sight, and have made you a great name, like unto the name of the great men of the earth. God says to David, listen, David, these are the things that I have done for you. I took you from the barn, and I made you ruler. And I sustained you while you were in the wilderness, running from your enemies. I was with you wherever you went. And all of your enemies at this point now are cut off. And I have done those things for you. And I have made your name a great name like unto the great men that are in the earth. I've done all those things. David, you're not going to do anything for me. You didn't even do what you did for yourself. <laughs> How are you going to do something good for me? And so God takes ownership of this whole temple business now in verse 10. And he says, moreover, 
I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I've already got this in my mind, David. I'm going to do it. And I'll plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time and as since. So from the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. So in other words, God is saying to David here, he's saying, listen, this has already been in my mind and in my plan since the time of the judges. Since way before you were even born, David, I had already had it in my mind that there would be a place appointed that I would set up for my people where they might rest, a temple or a central place of worship, an established fixed place where they wouldn't have to worry anymore. Now, on a side note, this gives me incredible comfort to realize that way before Israel went through any of their struggles throughout the the wars of Canaan, when the land was being divided in the days of Joshua, And then through the period of the judges, when there were all the ups and downs, remember, they'd serve and then they'd apostatize and then they'd get right and 400 years of that. And then through the transition in Samuel into King Saul's reign, that all through that time, God had it in his mind that there would be a time of rest and security and stability for his people of Israel. And the reason why that gives me comfort is because that's that's the way God is with each one of us individually as well. He sees from the time that we first get saved, he sees already that there's going to be a time in our lives when he brings us into a settled place while we're still here on earth. That even though there's wars and battles, even though there's the cutting away of the flesh and the building up of the new man and the roller coaster experience of the up and down Christian life, you know, God with God's with me and God's not, God sees through all of that a point in our future already where there's going to be stability, where he's going to bring us into the place that he... So so God says to David, David, I've already got all of this. I'm so glad that you're, you're thinking so clearly, David, and so far ahead and that you want to do all these great things. This is my plan. Don't touch it. But David, I got more I want to do for you. Notice what he says at the end of verse 11. He says, also... So on top of all of this, on top of the fact that you've been taken from the barn, sustained in the wilderness, delivered from your enemies, also now on top of all of that, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. David looks around. I'm dwelling in a house of cedar. You know, I'm in a palace already. The Lord is gonna, future tense, make me a house. David gets the message. It has nothing to do with a palace or a house of cedar or a temple. And the greater message is God's house doesn't have anything to do with a temple of gold or cedar or a holy of holies or articles of worship either. What's the house he's talking about? He says, verse 12, And when thy days be fulfilled... And you shall sleep with your fathers. I will set up thy seed after you, which shall proceed out of thy bowels or out of your loins, and I will establish his kingdom. And so basically what God is saying to David here is saying, David, I have a plan for your lineage, for your posterity, those that that will come after you. And he says, I'm going to set up your seed after you, and I'm going to establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for my name. In other words, David, it's not my plan for you to build the temple or to build the house for my name, but one that's coming after you is going to build the house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I'm just going to read... uh, Two more, two or three more verses here, and then I'm going to, you know, develop this a little bit. And he says, I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan now speak unto David. And so God gives him this message that he's going to build him a house. And, and basically the, the, the prophecy or the message now that's brought from Nathan to David carries with it two major implications. Number one is the intermediate. In the short term or in the intermediate of what this is, he's talking to David concerning Solomon, his son. I'm going to give you a son, David, who's going to sit on the throne after you, and he's the one who's going to build my house. And Solomon ultimately would be the one that did that. Now, following Solomon, God says to David, there's going to be a line of kings that come from him, and the lineage of those kings is going to continue forever. So in the earthly realm... God is saying to David that, David, your descendants are going to be the kings of Israel indefinitely, that I've chosen you to be that uh, in an earthly sense. Now, in the long term of things, what God is promising David here is that the Messiah or the eternal king of Israel is also going to come through his lineage. That's the house that God is more concerned with. Not the temple that people will come to and worship that will ultimately be burned up, thrown down, and the gold of it ransacked, and you know the thing will cease to exist. But rather the eternal house that will be built by the lasting Son of God. Notice the word seed that he uses there in verse um, 12 when he says that I will set up thy seed after you. And notice the word his at the end of the verse, that I'll establish his kingdom. Both of those things are singular. He doesn't say seeds, or those that will, those, but rather him. It's a singular. That God isn't speaking exclusively of Solomon in this, but rather he's looking through Solomon towards the Son, towards Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God gave a promise. We call it the... Um, the, the, the technical term for it is the proto-evangelicum, which means the first mention of the gospel or of the Savior in the Bible. It's Genesis 3.16. And it's a word that God gave to Eve after the curse. He said that, that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And it was looking forward to the fact that God would send a Messiah into the world that would come through the seed of men. So from the very beginning, God established it, that the Messiah would come and he would be born into the world as a man. So just think about that for one moment. That from the beginning, God established that Jesus would come into the world as a man. Meaning that there had to be a family in the world that would produce that man, right? So from the very beginning, it's been known to all that God was going to choose a family through which he would bring his son into the world. But he didn't say which family. And so that remained a mystery all the way throughout the days of Adam and his descendants. Who would it be? Eve thought initially that it would be Cain. Cain means appointed. And God, or Eve thought that God had appointed Cain to be the savior, the one that would redeem the world. She was wrong. It wasn't Cain, nor was it any of his descendants. In the days of Abraham, God promised to Abraham that it would be through his lineage and through his descendants that the Messiah would come. So now God narrowed that branch, that family down, that it would come through the descendants of Abraham. And so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons, the patriarchs, 12 families that make up the tribes. But still now you have a vast array of families that God could choose to bring his descendants into the world. Through a prophecy given to Jacob in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, God spoke to Jacob and he said that the scepter, that is the ruling authority, the rod of rulership, will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. So God narrowed it down, Adam, Abraham, Judah. It will be someone from the family or the tribe of Judah through which Messiahship will be attained and obtained in the world. And now God comes to David and he says, David, you're it. It's going to be through your family and it's going to be one of your descendants 
I'm going to bring Messiah into the world. That's why, this is why this chapter, the reason why this is such an important event in David's life is why Jesus is called the son of David. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. If it weren't for this word from Nathan, that wouldn't exist. Interestingly, the first words in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, these are the generations or the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The fact that he would come through. Six times in the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. A little bit later on, when two blind men come to Jesus or, or, or Jesus passes by them and they seek healing, they cry out and they say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. It was a declaration of faith that he was the Messiah, the one that was promised, the one that was coming. Jesus healed them. A little bit later on, a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman who needed help for her daughter who was sick, came to Jesus and said, Lord, help. And Jesus said, you're not one of my appointed people. And she looked at him and she said, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus looked at her and he rewarded her faith and he healed her daughter, declaring him to be the son of David. A little bit later on, two more blind men call upon him. And say, oh Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Later on, Jesus calls himself that as he's talking to the Pharisees and the Pharisees contesting him. And Jesus looks at them and says, hey, you guys know the scriptures. The Messiah, when he comes, whose son will he be? And they looked at him and said, David's son. And then Jesus throws him a curveball and he says, well, if David, if the Bible calls him David's son, then how does David call him Lord. You guys are all mixed up. You know nothing. But Jesus himself knew himself to be the son of David. That it would be through the descendant in the lineage of David that the Messiah, the Christ, would come into the world. And so Jesus Christ, the son of David, what God is promising David here is that David is going to produce the materials to build the temple. What are the materials to build the temple? You need cedar. No. The kings, the kings, the kings, the descendants, the lineage, the generations that would bring us to Jesus Christ. David's going to provide those materials. So what is the house? First Peter chapter two, it says that you and I, that we are living stones. We're the materials that make up that house. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 28, and then again throughout the New Testament, Psalm 118 as well, it says that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, the one who sets and lays the foundation for what that house will ultimately be and become. He's the measuring stone through which it is made. And that we are living stones, known and read of all men, shaped to be parts and pieces, parcel of that house that he will dwell in and walk with. We are the temple of the living God. And so that's the house that God is promising that David is going to be a part of. And so David now hears this prophecy of Nathan, understands the implications of what God is saying, that not only will Solomon and his, his kings bring forth Messiah, but that Messiah then will build something that will be established forever. David now responds to it in verse 18. So then went King David in, and he sat before the Lord and he said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me hitherto or brought me this far? Have you ever had a moment like that in your own life where you just think about where God has brought you from and where he's brought you to and what he's brought you through and sustained you through? And you just sit before him and you realize his goodness and you say, Lord, who am I and what is my father's house that you have brought me this far? Why would you do all the good things that you have done for me? If you've never experienced that, you just keep walking with him a little while longer. And you're going to, hopefully, if, if, if you have any sense and, and sight to what's going on, you'll come to that place. And he says, and this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, but you have spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Lord, not only have you done all of this for me that you've brought me to this point, but you just made me a promise 
that extends into eternity in what it yields for me beneficially and, and, and for my profit. Lord, I don't deserve what you've done up to this point, And what you've just told me is so much more. And I just think about you and I as we just sit here right now. Just think about everything that God's done. But now, think about everything that he has yet to do. Think about the place that he has set for us in eternity. Sometimes I talk to a man or, or a woman, talk to a person, and, you know, they'll come to me and they'll, they'll say, you know, I just, I just wish we had a little bit more money. It's always a struggle. You know, we can't make ends meet. And, uh, you know, and, and just we're constantly trying to, to get there and we just can't get there. And when is it going to happen? I've applied for this and applied for that job or this and the career. The, the thing. And sometimes I'll, I'll just sit back and I'll just say, say do you realize that you're going to be alive in a billion years? <laughs> I mean, just think about that number for a minute. If you wanted to count to a billion it would take you from the time that you were one years old, you started counting, you wouldn't finish till you were 42. That's how long it takes to count to one billion. You're going to be alive in a billion years. And when you look at the lifespan, just that much, from today until you're a billion years old, for 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. There's, a, there's an incredibly important thing here that you could miss if you overlook it, and that is this. That even though God gave a promise to David that God was going to fulfill this, uh, this work on his behalf, David still prayed for it anyway. That even though God said he was going to do it, David still prayed. And he prays it twice in this thing. He begins and ends his prayer with the request, God, would you please do what you said that you were going to do? And I just want you to sow that thought in your mind as we bring all this to a close. What's our takeaway from all this uh, as we wrap it up? Just three things to consider in light of all that, that took place before us in this chapter and as it concerns uh, God's work in our lives as well. Number one is this, is that God absolutely does have a mission and a designed purpose for our lives. That just like for Abraham, to have a son would change eternity. For Jacob, 12 sons would change eternity. For Joseph, to Egypt would change eternity. For David, the ark in Jerusalem would change eternity. For Solomon, to build the temple. That There is a specific and, and designed purpose for every one of our lives that's going to change the face of eternity for God. Ephesians 2.10, that we're his workmanship created in Christ for good works, is equally true for every single one of us. God has a plan in all this. Now, sometimes what we can think is we can think, well, God's good purposes are already taken. You know, he might have some generic purposes left. You know, things that he can do in our lives, you know, with, with someone like me. But, but all the good things are done. You know, there's no temple to be built, you know, and all, all the rest. And, you know, Jacob's already passed. And now it's just kind of like the, whatever the table scraps are of God's purposes. You know, he kind of throws us a little cut off from that or whatever. And No, 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 no. Ha, has it ever struck you in wonder that there's no two faces that are identical? You ever thought about that? I mean, sometimes I look around and I just look at just look at a face, and you think, how in the world can God just keep designing faces? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, it, and some of them are actually still good looking. You know, I mean, you'd think that he 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 would you would think that he would run out of that. Or a fingerprint. You know, how can, how can it be so specific? Or, or you know, the pattern of the eye or, or a snowflake. How is it that he can continue to develop all these things? God doesn't run out of ideas or plans or of things that can turn into something a billion years from now and make an impact and mean something. So he can do something with our lives no matter what. I had one of those talks with my wife uh, not too long ago, and we were talking about, you know, um, God's work and the life. I mean, we're men, right? We go through things sometimes when we say, what in the world am I doing with my life, you know, and, and the whole thing. And, and sometimes we can think that we're getting um, on in years and that God really hasn't done much with us. I want to say two things to that, if you've ever felt that way or if you're feeling that way, like God's not really using my life. Number one is that most of the people that have made a huge impact in, in our world or, in, or for God in our world have no idea exactly what it was that made that impact. Abraham didn't know that just having Isaac, right, was going to make the impact that it did. So a lot of us don't know the impact that we're making, even at the very time that we're making it. Number two, and this might encourage some of you, I know it encourages me, you think, well, I'm you know, this old or I've got only this much time left or this. Listen, just think for one minute what Jesus Christ accomplished in this world in three years. Three years, right? I, I think short of some other intervention, I've got more than three years left. Which means there's plenty of time for God to do things with my life, no matter where I am or what everything has led up to at this point. God has a plan. He's got things that he can do with our lives, great things beyond what we could ask or think. That's number one. Number two, by way of application this morning. In order for our mission or purpose to unfold and to prosper, God's purpose and uh, plan for our manhood must also unfold and prosper. 
Remember back at the beginning of our time this morning, I told you that God has two things he's doing in our lives. Number one, he's forming Christ. And number two, he's completing a mission. And I said at the beginning, I said that his work to conform us into the image of Christ is more important to him than the mission and plan that he has for us. The two things work in tandem. If we're not growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, if we're not being changed into his image, if we're not growing as Christians, then it's possible for us to miss out on a part or all of the plan that God has for our mission or what we're going to do in our lives. You ever read Abraham? You look at Abraham's life and God gave him a little tiny promise at the beginning. You say, Abe, this is what I got in mind for you. And then Abraham walked with God and grew for 10 years. And after 10 years, his faith had grown. God expanded the promise. He said, all right, Abraham, I'm going to give you a little more. And he showed him a little bit more of the scope of it. And then Abraham went another 10 years and he grew and his faith grew and he changed. And then God unfolded a little bit more. And then by the time 50 years had passed in Abraham's life, God said, Abraham, now I'm going to show you the whole thing of what I'm going to do with your life. Now that you haven't withheld your only son from me, this is what's going to happen. Kings of kings are going to come from you. I mean, the thing just expanded. And that's how it works with us. As we grow in Christ, the plan of God unfolds yet more and more. But both things must happen. Meaning there has to be change within our lives. There has to be growth. We must be cultivating. I would challenge you this week in your devotions or in your spare time to read John chapters 14, 15, and 16. They are almost exclusively red letters. It's actually a good time of the year to read that right before Easter because that's the season that all of that happened and took place. But in those sections, or those, that, those chapters, God gives us the recipe for growing in him. He says that we're to abide in him. He says that we're to ask. He says that we're to pray, that we're to seek. He says that we're to continue in his word. He says that we're to love one another and keep his commands. He says that we're to ask. I'm not re- being redundant. He was redundant. <laughs> read, you read the chapters and you just see over and over again what God said that we're supposed to do. But as we abide, the result is that we'll bear much fruit. And his desire for us is that we would bear fruit and that our fruit would remain. We must grow in our relationship with God and in his word. Um, number three, and finally, as we close out this morning, um, David didn't get to do what he wanted to do. So what did he do? He did the thing that he could do. God said no, right? David said, I want to build you a temple. God said, no, not my plan for you. Someone else is going to do that. That's coming, David, but not for you. So what did David do? David did everything he could do short of what God had given him. It's not told us here in this chapter, but as you read it in Chronicles and see what happens later in David's life, David didn't get bitter and say, well, if I can't build a temple, then I'm going to, I'm not doing anything. I wanted to build a church. I didn't get my building, so forget it. No, no, you know what he does? He says, if I can't do it, then I'm going to draw the plans. I'm going to supply the gold. I'm going to secure the cedar. I'm going to get everything in place that I can so that when God's timing is right for who it's right, all things are ready. I'm going to supply the materials for the future. Sometimes we have an idea for our life or an ambition for our life or something that we want for our life. And God says, that's not my plan for you. And we can either get bitter and say, well, God, if you're not going to do this for me, then I'm not going to serve you and the whole thing. It's not the right heart. David's heart was, God, I'm going to do everything that I can short of it. And here's the amazing thing for you and me is that we can always build or gather, rather, the materials for God's temple. How? By giving away his truth to others. Especially our kids, right, dads? As we raise up our kids in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, we are preparing the materials for the temple. Because we're living stones, right? It's our greatest duty. And it's the thing that God has called us to do as men. Invest in our offspring in the whole thing. Um, closing question. What's the master passion of your life this morning? If you were to sit in a quiet moment and just think about the thing that drives you or the thing that you're ambitious for in this world or the thing that you want the most, what is it? 
What are you living for? What are you serving for? And what is that producing for you in your life? The Bible says concerning our God that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. And as we just consider and look at what God has done and is going to do for David, we get an idea of what that looks like. He went from the barn to the palace with the promise of an eternal kingdom. That's pretty good for showcase number one, right? Showcase number two, the best I can do for myself to be brought into this world with nothing, to make a great name for myself, to gather for myself a bunch of goods and riches that someday I'm going to leave to someone else and I leave this world with less than I brought into it because I don't even leave with a body. I came in with a body. I don't even leave with a body. If the master passion of my life is anything that this world promises or can produce or provide, then I'm living way short of what God intends and can do within my life. Because I'm not omniscient, and I'm not omnipotent, and I don't know the end from the beginning. And the plans that I have for my life, they change with the conditions of my life. But if I yield myself and I say, God, I want to live completely for you. I want my manhood to be Christ in me. I want that to be the definition of who I am, increasingly so. And God, I want the outcome and product and produce of my life to be what you set me in this world for and what you've determined for my eternity. Then the guarantee, if we give ourselves to that, is that we will have exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And we'll find ourselves sitting in a place with David saying, Oh Lord, who am I? And who is my father's house that you have brought me this far? And yet you have spoken concerning your servant of things a great while yet to come. Lord, establish it according to your word. Which kingdom would you rather live for? This one? Or his? His?